This is Stories of Wind, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, this is Caitlin from Stories of Women in Neuroscience, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Anne Uri, Assistant Professor of Cognitive Psychology at Leiden University and leader of the Cognitive Computational and Systems Neuroscience Lab. And thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. So we generally like to start these interviews off by asking, how did you first become interested in studying the brain? Yeah, of course, I was reflecting on this, on, on my history and, and on this question today. And I think there were many accidents and coincidences. So already in high school, I was interested both in kind of STEM, biology and, and math, but also I really like languages. I did some philosophy um, and um, I, I already then in high school didn't really want to choose, which in the Netherlands, they, uh, you're encouraged to choose at like age 14 already quite early. Um, and already then I kind of tried to keep my, my foot in, in both of these domains. And then as an undergrad, I chose this liberal arts and sciences college where you were again encouraged to sign up for different courses. And they would first assign the third years and the second years and then the first year undergrads. And I just got placed into cognitive neuroscience and philosophy in my very first semester and loved both of those so much that I, you know, continued on on those two tracks for the rest of my undergrad. So I think if they would have randomly assigned me to chemistry and Spanish, I would probably be doing something very different now. Uh, Yeah, but I really liked uh, also this combination of neuroscience and thinking about the brain and then these philosophical questions uh, of, you know, what even is cognition uh, and how does it work and what is also the philosophy of, of science itself. Um, and the same thing with my master. I, uh, I, I found this program that was uh, called Brain and Mind Sciences. So it was, again, very broad. Uh, so the theme is, I guess, that I've always tried to kind of uh, keep my options open uh, and study many different things at once. Uh, but yeah, I think that kind of first semester in undergrad was really the origin that, that got me uh, on this path for towards neuroscience. Do you think every undergrad who wants to study neuroscience should also take a philosophy course? One course would be good. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, in general, scientists work under all these um, you know assumptions and, and methods and ways we approach things that have been under you know, scrutiny by philosophers for, for a long time. So I think having a sort of, um, you know, a little bit of a background into what is the process of science, uh, not specifically neuroscience, uh, but how, how science proceeds is, I think, very valuable. And many people have made this point that as neuroscientists, we're never working in a totally philosophy-free space. Like we always have our assumptions and the way that we test uh, our ideas and the way that we communicate. So being more aware of those is, I think, very helpful. Yeah. And I also find philosophy of mind uh, in general really interesting and has a lot of links with um, computer science and, uh, and cognitive science. Yeah. So on that topic, what was it about cognitive neuroscience that interested you during your undergrad and what did you end up pursuing during your master's? Yeah, so I think in my undergrad, I just I hadn't learned that much about the brain in biology in high school. It was mostly about other organs. I think, and like the citric acid cycle and kind of more detailed biology. And then the neuroscience was just cool to me because it was about this biological organ 
but then also it gives rise to all these you know much larger and and more complex and, and richer things like thoughts and disorders and uh you know all of our mental lives and i think i found that link between that like richness on the one hand and the kind of ability to study it with more scientific and reductionistic tools i found that combination just very cool uh, but again i don't think that that is necessarily something i could have only found in neuroscience uh, there's probably many other fields where you can kind of bridge those different aspects i think it's true that a lot of people are drawn towards neuroscience coming from biological backgrounds because they find biological processes interesting but there is this sort of like intangible stuff in neuroscience like you know in with other aspects of biology like with the kidneys for instance Mm -hmm. you can see how the biological processes give rise to like filtering of blood or something whereas in neuroscience it's like we've got these biological processes that we can see and we understand but the fact that they lead to these really higher level subjective experiences there's like uh, a bridge that just fascinates so many people I can definitely relate to that in terms of why I got into neuroscience <laughs> yeah for sure and I think that like you said it really well like that bridge of like subjective experience and, and consciousness like that's a whole field of cognitive neuroscience that I was really interested in and actually in my master's I, I joined um labs so I did this master's that was in UCL in London and then in Paris uh, at NS and I joined these labs that were studying uh, subjective experience and 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 consciousness uh, and it, it's still really fascinating. Uh, but I also felt that because there is a bit of this intangible, you know, there remains this this intangible problem about, some people call it qualia, like really the subjective nature of like why we are aware the world in a certain way, uh, that that I think left me feeling a little bit, um, yeah, it was too ungraspable for me in a sense. So then uh, towards my PhD, I actually turned towards the more quantitative uh, and I guess, um, yeah, more approachable uh, topics of, of decision making that are a little bit easier to study in the lab without having to grasp these big questions every day. I don't know how we make decisions still seems like a pretty big question to me. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah, that, that's true. There's a lot of uh, a lot of open questions there as well. So when you pivoted from this big question of consciousness to decision making, what in particular in decision making were you interested in? So I think I, I'm not sure that I really made that like jump topic wise so much. So when I was a first year master's student um, at UCL, the project I was doing was in collaboration with a few other scientists. And one of them, we were just sitting in the EG room uh, one day and I was discussing with him what my plans were and that I might want to go back to the Netherlands as that was where I'm from. And also my boyfriend had just found a job there. So he mentioned offhandedly something like, oh, you should go work with uh, Tobias Donner. He's just starting his lab in Amsterdam. Uh, And that, you know, I ended up approaching that uh, PI and ended up doing my PhD there. So it was definitely also a a lucky set of circumstances that brought me then to to that topic. Uh, And also very much that that was a uh, place where I wanted to live at the time and a PI that I was, you know, would enjoy discussing science with. So it was kind of a combination of those factors. Yeah, serendipitous moment that led you to where it was that you wanted to be. That's excellent. So what was it that you investigated during your PhD? So I started out being really interested in perceptual learning. So the idea there is that you perceive the world around you differently after you have a ton of experience with a certain perceptual process. So the classical example is if you're training to be a radiologist in the hospital and you judge these uh, images like x-rays, then over the years, your visual system just becomes 
really excellent at spotting very minute details that to you or me uh, might not be visible at all. So how is the perception system like over time, um, you know, really zooming in on some of these visual features? So um, I initially uh, got some funding for my PhD to work on this topic uh, and started to um, um, record brain data from people before and after they went through this uh, process of training on this visual task. So it's rather boring, to be honest. You sit in, in the lab in the dark, like perhaps you've, you've done it yourself, and you, you just like see, look at these, uh, we call them random dot images, like for hours uh, at a time. And you, you do really get better. Um, but when it came to analyzing those data, uh, it turned out that some of the hypotheses that I had uh, were actually hard to answer given the sample sizes that I had collected. Um, and this was, there was a kind of interesting uh, parallel movement in especially psychology at that time, uh, which people have called the replication crisis, where there were actually mm -hmm. many cases showing up of psychology research not being uh, all that reliable. Uh, and one of the reasons for this was that sample sizes were low. So, so the more I looked into the specific question of learning, which is difficult because you only get kind of one data point per person, uh, I, I realized that maybe that wouldn't be the most kind of statistically sound question to answer with that with that data. Mm, so, but at the same time, there were all these other projects going on. I had collected some data uh, of pupil size. So you could just measure the, the dilation of the pupil as people do all these tasks. Um, and I realized that there was actually a link between uh, the size of people's pupil as they were making decisions and a statistical model of decision confidence or uncertainty um, that you can kind of define mathematically. So that became kind of the first project of my PhD. Uh, and I then also uh, saw in these behavioral data that when you are more uncertain about a decision, it changes the likelihood that you uh, will repeat that same decision the next time around. So uh, I started looking into these uh, types of uh, decision patterns over time, which we call choice history bias. And in the end, that became the main topic uh, of my PhD uh, in different forms. That's so interesting. So a relationship between pupil size and decision confidence. So that was saying that like people's pupil sizes were different based on how confident they were in the decision that they just made. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's actually this like inverse relationship so that the more uncertain you are uh, about a decision that you've just made, the more you think, oh, I might have been wrong the bigger your pupils will be. And the idea is that you have this kind of uh, arousal signal, you might think of it, like a quick signal that says, oh, that was maybe a mistake uh, that we can read out. Uh, of course, just, you know, putting, pointing a video camera at the eye. Um, and, and we can use that to kind of infer this global state that we think is also really important for, for brain function uh, in general and that has been linked to the release of uh, neuromodulators, for instance, from the brainstem. That's so interesting. So is the idea that, you know, if someone is uncertain about their choice, they sort of need to take in more information in order to build their confidence up. So they need this heightened state of arousal in order to like attend more or get like be able to pay that attention? That is a good question. So we didn't specifically tackle that hypothesis, but the way in which we looked at it was that if you're uh, uncertain, it means that you that the thing that you were just doing might no longer be the best strategy because you you may not be quite on the right track. So then kind of going with mm -hmm. your same default choice uh, may not be the wisest thing to do. So if you are uncertain, then we can read that from your pupil, then it makes more sense to show behavior that is more exploratory uh, and that kind of takes in uh, a variety of sources 
from the environment. Did this result surprise you? Um, I've never had, I think, these kind of these like eureka moments in science. I know people, some people mm-hmm. that describe them that they, you know, they, they analyze their data and they sit there in the lab and they're the one person in the world that knows this. I think for me, these things have always been very <laughs> gradual. So I feel mm-hmm. like very often the first time I, I make a figure and if it looks very interesting and good, I almost think it's too good to be true. There must be an error somewhere. And very often there is an error and, you know, I've, I've not <laughs> plotted it the right way. So I think this confidence in that finding like builds very gradually as I, you know, look at the data and kind of think about what it means and check other things that if my hypothesis is true, then this other thing must also be true. Um, so I think by the time I really accepted that this was what was happening in the data, uh, I wasn't that surprised anymore. It was kind of a process of coming to terms with that was really what was going mm-hmm. on. It is interesting that we, as scientists and also people outside of science, have this perception of, as you say, the eureka moment, that moment where everything falls into place or you identify something abnormal. And I actually think that maybe it would be really helpful for, for a lot of people to like discuss the fact that these decisions often happen quite gradually and it's about building your own confidence in your findings rather than having that moment where everything makes sense. I remember having a conversation with a postdoc in my lab a couple of weeks ago where I asked, like, at what point in a project are you sure that your finding is real? And he said, when the paper's published. <laughs> and even then, and someone else has said that they believe it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes still years after you think, oh, wow, you know, maybe there's this other interpretation that could lead me to revisit my findings. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's uh, The work's never really process. done. Yeah. <laughs> So is that sort of the the uh, bullet point version of your PhD? That's everything that you looked at. What did you do after your PhD? Yeah, I mean, I did a few other projects, like doing um, brain recordings in, in humans and some behavioral modeling. And then, like, I would say halfway throughout my PhD, I was kind of thinking what I wanted to do. I had a bunch of options. So I thought about things outside academia. Um, I... Within academia, I started to make a list of people that did cool stuff. It was very broad. So it was like spanning many countries and and different model species and different topics in neuroscience. So whenever I would read a cool paper or saw a talk or so, I would just write someone's name down. Um, And so then I would just try to meet these people and see if I'd like them. Uh, And one of the people on that list was Anne Churchland, who has been on your podcast as well. Uh, I, I did my postdoc in her lab at Cold Spring Harbor in New York. And she, at some point, visited the University of Amsterdam, where I was living. And I realized this only, like, the day, I think, before she came. And I was like, wow, I, I must meet this. I must meet her because her work is really cool. And, and she just seemed like also a really interesting uh, person in general. So I somehow got myself invited to the speaker's dinner that often happens, like, after, you know, foreign guest uh, gives a lecture. Um, yeah, so we chatted a little bit. Afterwards, I, uh, I emailed her that I was very interested in her lab. So she uh, studies decision making in mice. And I thought that just the neural signals that you get and the types of analyses that you can do with those, you know, invasive neural data were just really exciting uh, and, you know, a lot closer to the biological signal than what we can do in humans. Um, and I was actually looking up this email today. She said something like, oh, yeah, it was nice to meet you. At the moment, I don't really have funding, but maybe in a, in a few months, you know, we could, we could chat about some opportunities. And I thought, okay, fine. You know, she's just politely telling me that it's not the right fit, that, that there's no funding. So I kind of forgotten about it. But then a few, years, few months later, she did reply 
with the announcement that there was now some funding and whether I would want to come and in, in interview. So that was a, a kind of realization uh, that, that that you was actually a serious. And when I interviewed there, I also looked at a few other places. Uh, I was really excited about one project that she proposed, uh, which was what I ended up doing for my postdoc, and that's the International Brain Lab. So it's pretty different from a standard postdoc in the sense that it's not you know one postdoc doing a research project with one PI, but a whole consortium uh, of many labs in both theoretical and experimental systems neuroscience. And you know, having kind of grown up in this replication crisis in psychology and with all these changes in the open science movement during my PhD, I just thought that that would be a super exciting place to be, to really build this kind of different way of doing science. And it also appealed to me to just do something completely different, you know, work with mice and, and be in this big team, which kind of in many ways was different from the day to day of what I had been doing in my, in my PhD. So yeah, that was what I uh, ended up doing for two and a half years uh, as a postdoc and had a great time. Could you give like a brief description of uh, what IBL, the International Brain Lab is and what sort of the rationale is behind the project? Yeah, so I mean, I unfortunately didn't come up with this idea, but several um, PIs in this field got together and realized, I think two things. The first is that many people study the neural basis of behavior, but they often each have a very specific behavioral task that they use to probe that behavior, you know? One may have a task that involves a mouse licking a water spout, or another has uh, decisions based on a navigation in some space, and that it's actually pretty difficult to know if these things even replicate between labs. Because unlike in psychology, the setups are often so technical and specific that we very rarely try to replicate exactly the behavior that someone else uses. So these things kind of stay within one lab and are a bit siloed. And the second problem was that to understand even a pretty simple behavior, it became more and more clear that we need to know something about neural activity really throughout the brain. And that for a single lab, even with the amazing improvements in tools for recording neural activity, that is just too difficult to collect that within one lab so that we kind of needed to team together. So that was uh, a little bit, I would say, the, the idea behind starting this, this collaboration where when I came in as a postdoc, we first set out to try and replicate one single behavioral task in exactly the same ways in a few different labs. And that, it took a while. So we, we faced quite a few challenges. You know, there were things like, what do the mice eat and how do we handle them? And how exactly do we build the setup? And some of these details turned out not to be so important, but for some, we really had to, uh, had to think for a long time about how to make our behavioral procedures uh, robust. And in the end, uh, you know, this has been published now, uh, we have this procedure that we found that if a new lab, you know, follows exactly these, um, these guidelines, that they can indeed have a very replicable and robust uh, behavior. And from that, we uh, were then able to start recording, not just from one pre-selected part of the brain, which is very often what people do, they have their favorite behavior and their favorite part of the brain, um, but to just sample in this much more unbiased way, like a large chunk uh, of the mouse brain and, and really bring together those recordings uh, into a data set that, you know, we hope will also be really useful for the community to work with. 
There's something so exciting about the idea of two completely different labs on opposite sides of the world doing exactly the same thing and getting exactly the same results. And I suppose as well, almost outsourcing or deferring to different groups of people's expertise. You know, the visual people can look at the visual system. You know, PFC people can look at, well, people can still stick to their favorite brain regions, but yeah. in a sort of collaborative, uh, For collaborative sure. way. Yeah. And I mean, the Allen Institute has been, you know, in, in systems neuroscience, this great example. They're, they're based in Seattle and they really have, you know, an actual institute where they have really worked on these very reproducible and, and open source pipelines and they do a lot of uh, excellent work, but they still have the advantage that they're based in one place. And we had the additional challenge of indeed like doing this in very different, uh, in different universities, you know, with different, uh, different time setups, and- different time <laughs> zones, you know, different uh, temperatures. And, and, and sometimes we had to ship parts around the world because we couldn't buy this exactly the same type of screw in the US as they had in, in the UK or so. So, you know, it kind of makes you appreciate the, the challenges uh, involved in that. Do you think there are going to be more projects like this popping up over time? I hope so. Uh, I mean, some of it is, is dependent on funding. So there was very generous funding from the Wellcome Trust and the Simons Foundation who really invested in this project. And I think, unfortunately, still many universities and um, you know funding streams are very focused on the single PI, like single lab model. Uh, but I do hope that the successes of projects like this will kind of spur more more people to uh, to work together. Yeah, and I also hope that yeah, not sure. only the um, the neuroscience that we did, but also some of the sociological experiments that we conducted as a group will kind of inform others to do similar things. So we had a lot of discussions, for instance, about how we assign credit to everyone who's involved in a project and how we um, take this into account when we decide the authorship uh, on papers, for instance, uh, and how we uh, make sure that everyone in the project, um, you know, kind of knows what they're expected and has a nice combination between freedom to work on their own interests versus uh, contributing to the general goal of the collaboration. So there are really many aspects of that, which I think could be widely interesting to other large groups. And we do see many of such groups, like there's, um, I think a uh, consortium called Many Primates who investigate uh, non-human primate behavior. Uh, there's one called Many Babies who study how babies acquire knowledge of the world around them. And so there, these like initiatives are kind of popping up in different uh, fields, yeah. It's a really interesting point, actually, that it wasn't just a, a neuroscience experiment, but an experiment of how this many people could work together to do something, like what that means for science culture and publishing culture. No, that's that's a really interesting point. So just to go back to your postdoc very quickly, uh, or specifically deciding where to do your postdoc, it sort of sounds like since the start of your academic career, obviously, you've had a very broad range of interests and keeping your options open or pursuing all of these broad interests has been very important to you. How did you make the decision on as to which lab to go into for your postdoc, or indeed, how, how did you decide how to stay in whether or not to stay in academia in general? Yeah, so I had a few labs that I talked to for my postdoc, and I had decided early on when I was making my list that I would only go to places where my partner could join me, and that was kind of restricted to places where people spoke English or Dutch. Uh, I did also look at one one lab in, in China, but I didn't end up going there. So that kind of narrowed it down uh, quite a bit, and I think that was always. A factor for me, you know, to prioritize places where I would enjoy living and where I would kind of work uh, work with my life in general. And after I, I visited the Church and Lab, uh, I just it was 
largely gut feeling. I mean, I just, the people were really nice. Uh, I went there, I got stuck in a snowstorm on my interview. Uh, so, you know, it was this, this beautiful campus in the snow. Um, and, and I just felt really excited talking about the science that people there uh, were doing. And it was just a really welcoming, welcoming crowd. Plus the fact that there was this IBL, this International Brain Lab project just starting and that I could be a really early part of it uh, was also a big draw for me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think as scientists, often we try and make decisions based solely on our heads because that's sort of the way that we're, we're taught to think about things is, you know, pros, cons, does this make sense? But I, I do agree that often important decisions in life, it's about whether you feel it, whether you feel like you're in the right place and this is going to work for you. Yeah, one thing that I have done later with, with big decisions as well is to really separate out the different factors that go into these things, like the city, and the colleagues and the project and maybe you know if it pays sufficiently and all of these different aspects um and this is you know maybe the more scientific approach to really like delineate what are all the different factors and how do i rank each of my options on each of those factors and what are the weights that i assign to each of those factors and then of course you know when studying decision making we know that you should then (laughs) do a kind of weighted average of each of those uh, each of those factors and that has helped me to really consider okay how important do I really find the city versus um, the scientific facilities versus the colleagues? Uh, and, and, you know, putting a kind of number on that can really help you clarify what's what's important to you uh, as a whole. Mm. Have you ever found that you've totted up these weighted averages and then the choice that comes out on top is not actually the choice that you want to go to? You look at it and you go, on paper, that's it. But <laughs> personally... Um, it, it's no, it's pretty much aligned because I think it makes you kind of make explicit what you fe- feel deep down anyway. That maybe this one place mm. is like better for for some reasons. So so far, I haven't had that problem, but who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how? Let me start that one again. Um, you've worked in quite a lot of different places, like different re- academic environments, different countries. Do you find it challenging switching between different cultures and getting used to a new place? Or do you think you've done enough of it now that it's, you're pretty, you're an old hand at it? <laughs> um, when I started my postdoc, I knew pretty much nothing about wet lab biology. I had only touched research mice like maybe once during a high school internship, and I really had a lot to learn. So... Uh, I think there was definitely, you know, a while that I was sitting in talks about genetics and about the details of brain tissue in mice and about all these uh, these procedures for working with uh, with that kind of data. Uh, and I, I I had imposter syndrome there for a long time. So I think even if you switch a little bit, still every new place has its own jargon and its own um, you know social norms. That it just takes some time to get used to. Yeah, so I wouldn't say it becomes, maybe it becomes a little bit easier, but you have to learn all these things starting anyway. I think what does get better is that you have more of a scaffolding of like understanding a little bit how that field relates to other things and to link it to what you already know. So that speeds up the process a little bit. Yeah. And I suppose also you've got the experience of going to a new place learning the jargon and it all working out fine so you've got more confidence that even if something feels unfamiliar you will get used to it eventually yeah although when you're in that you know situation it can still feel feel quite daunting but but it's true that you do uh, gain some confidence that it will work out yeah i'm also reminded like when you learn a new language you know it helps a lot if you've already learned similar ones that you can connect 
this new knowledge to, um, which kind of speeds it up and, and you you know a little bit what your learning curve was like when you were learning French and now you're learning Spanish so you can kind of have a bit of an expectation of how it's going to go. Yeah, you've got a foundation of experience to relate what you're currently going through back to. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me about what happened after your postdoc. Well, the end of my postdoc was very chaotic. Um, so I was doing my recordings, uh, you know, I was in the lab long days and it was, it was going pretty well. So we had just gotten this behavior going and then I was, yeah, I was collecting these recordings that were going to go into this big, um, you know, data set for this International Brain Lab Consortium. This was in the spring of 2020. Uh, then in March, you know, COVID hit. Um, mm -hmm. And New York was really badly hit by the first wave. So it was a really strange time. Um, I was, so Cold Spring Harbor is not on Manhattan, but in the suburbs on Long Island. So I felt really lucky actually that we were able to just take walks outside and that we weren't like inside the city, but it was kind of a crazy time. Um, and yeah, we had to stop all the experiments. So uh, we could still go in and take care of our animals, but uh, all of that stopped. And it was good that we had already acquired quite a bit of data. So we had stuff to do uh, at home, but it was still a very weird time. Um, and very accidentally, I mean, I had started to think a bit about what I would do afterwards. Uh, I was really enjoying my time there, but I also knew that I didn't want to live in the United States for a very long time. So I was kind of looking at opportunities uh, again back home. And one day, actually, because it was this lockdown and I, I didn't have that much to do, I checked this folder in my email uh, inbox that I made a long time ago with like random uh, job opportunities. And normally I wouldn't really look at it, but I had some time on my hands. And I saw this uh, opening uh, Atlanta University for this assistant professorship. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, I'm not that busy. It's it's a lockdown. So uh, I ended up applying and that ended up the, the job that I uh, have now. And there were a couple of things that actually came together at that point. And, and again, in hindsight, this all sounds very, you know, as if it was meant to be, but uh, the uh, answer to my uh, advisor um, announced that she was moving her lab to UCLA, so to Los Angeles, uh, I think already that fall. So I, I was in this position where I could go to LA and continue my postdoc, but it would take quite some time, you know, to rebuild the lab, you know, disassemble everything, get everything established. So that wouldn't be something for a year, more for like several years to really get everything running there. And I also had this offer to uh, return and have, uh, you know, do a tenure track position with some teaching as well. Um, and this was all, you know, it was a very confusing time with all the lockdowns. Uh, I was also expecting a baby. So, you know, I, I made my matrix with all of my different options. Um, <laughs> And in the end, uh, you know, decided to uh, to come here, to come to Leiden and, and take this uh, assistant professorship. And yeah, we had to move and quarantine straight away uh, in our new apartment. And it was a very uh, strange time. Then I was on maternity leave for a while. But now for, yeah, about a year or so, you know, things are kind of opening up and I've been settling into the new, into the new job. Yeah. How have you been finding it? I mean, it's challenging to find your footing in this new community when many things are remote. So, I mean, there have also been good parts, uh, you know, with a, a small kid at home, it's been easier to juggle these things when there are not as many in-person events to attend, uh, for sure. Um, but I think only now that things here are now pretty open again, I'm 
it's becoming easier to connect with people and to really, you know, find find my place here um, and kind of think a bit about what I really want to do in the next few years. So it's been slow, but I think everyone's career has been quite slow with COVID. So I, I try not to uh, not to feel too bad about it. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's it's I think it's been brilliant seeing all of the initiatives that have come out of science being forced to go online like all of these online conferences and the fact that people have had to adapt and and, you know connect and collaborate in other ways but I completely agree it's definitely it's a lot harder to meet people and a lot harder to sort of build friendships and connections when you can't just go and grab a coffee or bump into each other like around the department but fingers crossed that's getting better now yeah yeah for sure I mean I do think there's a real bound to strike like you said between um, all of these virtual initiatives that have come up uh, and, and actually I think I've also learned that with the International Brain Lab like we were doing so many things online anyway because there were people from Switzerland to, to the west coast so we were already used to that uh, to some extent and I also think that all of the academic travel that we do um, is sometimes not you know not all of it is necessary uh, I think and we've seen that you know Maybe not all, but some of the uh, interactions and the trips that we used to take can be, you know, replaced uh, by virtual options. Um, And I think some of the initiatives that we've seen, so I've now also been working with Neuromatch, which has launched a virtual uh, summer school, Neuromatch Academy, and also a conference uh, in which I've played a very small part, have shown that, that we can really achieve all these goals, like being more diverse and being more inclusive to all sorts of people who may not easily travel uh, and include those in in our community and there's this other huge advantage of reducing our carbon footprint which i think is also something that we as a neuroscience community should be aware of and 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 take into account so it's going to be a big experiment in the next few years to see where we end up and how we strike that balance I did want to ask you actually about your uh, climate change awareness work, because I know that you're a very active campaigner for sustainability and climate change awareness. Um, how did you first start getting involved with those kinds of projects? During my postdoc in 2018, um, this report came out from the IPCC, the International uh, Panel on Climate Change, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, and there was just a lot of reporting and I read the news and I think I didn't before realize how bad things were honestly so I started to um, yeah kind of read up on this and and understand more about the huge task that we have uh, ahead of us and thinking about how I could somehow merge that kind of big worry and and that uh, you know those concerns with the, the work I was doing every day. And so then I met at the Society for Neuroscience Conference, I met Adam Aaron, who's been really a leader in his field. He's at um, UC San Diego. Uh, and he organized a session at SFN, actually, about how neuroscientists can respond or, and relate to the climate crisis. So from that, you know, we teamed up with a few people uh, and wrote a paper uh, about this initially. We even petitioned the Society for Neuroscience to consider the carbon impact of meeting which is massive um but then COVID hit so that you know was all a little bit um sidelined uh yeah and recently i've also been uh working with uh several people from the uk uh charlotte ray who's been really active in this in the human neuroimaging uh, community um and we've written a kind of updated paper on different ways in which we think the neuroscience community can um can address these issues 
Um, yeah. So what should we as neuroscientists be doing to do our bit for climate change? So I think it's interesting to consider all your the different roles that you play in a given week or month. Right? So I think first and foremost, you know, we're, we're individuals, we're citizens, so you can vote for a, a political party that has um, climate action uh, high on its agenda. You can talk to your friends and family and to your neighbors and do your bit in your own uh, personal life. And I think that talking about it and making it more of a normalized topic of conversation is, is always the starting point. Uh, and it's important to not limit yourself to just addressing your own footprint and then stopping there, but to really create this kind of social domino effect of you know multiplying your actions and, and uh, making it a social project that we all have to do together, because that is really the scale that, that we um, are faced with. Uh, and then there are also a few more specific things in neuroscience, like the um, emissions that are caused by the wet labs that we run. So that ranges uh, from the use of our equipment, uh, but also plastic pollution through a lot of single use uh, plastics, the flying that we do to conferences, uh, the computations that we run, especially in more you know computational neuroscience and uh, machine learning, which uh, can be very um, energy intensive. So I think just taking those things into account throughout our different uh, academic spaces that we find ourselves in, those of us who teach, you know, can think about those when they teach. I'm not um, looking into combining some of the psychology teaching I do with some thinking on kind of climate psychology or sustainability uh, psychology. So I think there, there are many ways. So I would say find one that resonates with you and that seems like a good first step. And it's a yeah, continual learning process um, that I'm still you know learning every day. And there are many organizations in, I think, almost every university these days uh, working on this. So I hope that the, the young scientists uh, listening will, will also not shy away from kind of addressing these, uh, these challenges. Yeah, I completely agree that sort of starting uh, a discourse and trying to get people to reflect on their own practices um, and how that can be having an impact on their community and on the world around them is really important. Yeah. And and I, I, I think it's really interesting to consider like times of rapid social change and, you know, within mm. academia and outside. So right now I'm uh, trying to also learn from other kind of movements, you know, like the, the movement um you know, like from the suffragettes to kind of the different waves of feminism and now, you know, the push for more diversity, like gender and uh, also much broader diversity also in academia. Right. So we see that these mm. these big movements that happen in the world are also impacting our academic lives, because now I think we're all much more aware of these problems with diversity and inclusion that we have in academia and that we should work to address them. And with open science, it's a similar thing. I mean, on a much smaller scale, but there were a few big cases of people that really brought these problems uh, to the surface uh, and I think we've changed a lot as a field definitely since I started my PhD you know sharing code and data is now becoming the norm and, and there have been a lot of projects working on these open science data and I think now if you're a PhD student and you don't uh, make code sharing your default practice it's probably you're probably in the minority so it's mm -hmm. I try to be hopeful about the rapid pace at which we have seen some of these changes, these cultural changes um, play out. Yeah, no, I think it is really important to take comfort in the, the fact that, yeah, you can 
and people have affected change. Because I think often you hear people lament that in academia, it's an archaic system and things move so slowly. And, you know, there are so many issues with the culture that are just so ingrained that they're never going to change. But you're exactly right. Like things like, yeah, open access science, code sharing. It's that's really only in like the most recent 10 years, 15 years. So actually it gives us hope that I suppose there are some big issues that we can actually address and hopefully quite quickly in the coming years. Very cool. So it's hugely exciting to hear that you've been uh, setting up your lab in this new job. Uh, Can I ask, what's the primary goal of your lab? What are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, so for the next few years, um, I'm branching out a little bit into uh, studying uh, aging. So this actually uh, began uh, back during my postdoc when I was uh, recording in this standardized task that I just described, like not just from the young mice that we would usually train, but also from mice that started their uh, learning this task when they were uh, quite a bit older, um, something like middle age, and if you compare it to the human uh, lifespan. And the idea here is really that you can study these the ways in which brain states fluctuate, like maybe with you know arousal that you can measure through the pupil or through learning processes that take place over a few weeks, so going from only seconds to two weeks, to these very slow state changes that you see over the lifespan that, that play out over, over many years. So um, I've already collected quite a bit of data uh, from these neural recordings uh, in mice, and I'm really now going to work on testing a few quite old theories that have suggested that the um, levels of neural noise may change as we or animals get older, and that this increased noise can be the cause for some of the behavioral changes that we see as people and uh, animals get older. So that will be something that I'm going to work on. And I'm also uh, starting a line of research where we're, I want to now translate this uh, all the work that the International Brain Lab is doing with this behavioral task and, uh, and do something similar for humans, where we can then really compare the behavior side by side and kind of look at the similarities and differences between these species, um, both in their behavior and then also in their brain activity, which in humans we can't measure with the same spatial temporal resolution, but we can still uh, extract uh, a lot of useful information from something like EEG, which uh, you measure outside the head. So those are kind of two uh, broad directions in which I'm now, uh, you know, going to work in the next few years. And, you know, as I said before, like there's always these serendipitous things that come on my way. So whether I'm still working on this in 10 years, I couldn't tell you, but uh, that will be the the immediate uh, direction in which I'm headed. They sound like incredibly interesting projects. So you're looking at uh, cognitive aging. So how... Uh, cognition and behavior change over well broad spans of time um so when you say neural noise what do you mean by neural noise yeah so this is actually something that has been defined in quite a few ways so you can look at noise across trials so that you know the the one time i show you this image your neural responses will be quite different from the next time i show you this image Uh, but you can also look you know at one time at the variation across a population of neurons um, there's also people that have defined noise, uh, not just looking at spikes, but for instance, at the uh, local field potential or EEG, where you can look at the whole frequency spectrum. And there's different interpretations. So one of the things I actually want to do is um, analyze those different definitions uh, of neural noise and really compare them in seeing which ones are the most relevant for behavior. 
And you have a theory that neural noise or the amount of neural noise might, may change as someone gets older or as a mouse ages. Yeah, um, this is not my theory. People have actually uh, come up with this already from the 50s. So some of these ideas are quite old. And I think what's now exciting is that with the recordings that we can obtain from mice, we can really analyze some of these properties, not just of noise at the level of single cells, but of many neurons that we can record simultaneously. I didn't really talk about this, but uh, during my postdoc, I used these um, kind of new uh, NeuroPixels probes where we can now record from many hundreds of neurons uh, across different areas of the brain. So I think it's cool that some of these old theories are now, you know, maybe we can find new answers to them with the new tools that we have and that are uh, available in mice. So are there, is there evidence to suggest that um, this phenomenon of increasing neural noise with age is present in humans as well? And could that account for some of the sort of age related changes in cognitive ability that we see? Yeah, definitely. So there's been work from Bradley Wojtek, who has looked at this with EEG, and he looked at definitions of neural noise um, in the frequency spectrum. Uh, so if you analyze all the different frequencies at which brainwaves uh, oscillate, then you can see that the slope of this spectrum actually changes with age. And there's also a line of work with, uh, in fMRI, this is from Doug Garrett's lab in Berlin, uh, where interestingly, they have actually seen that if you look at the variability of the fMRI signal, but over time, uh, in like a span of 10 minutes or so, that it becomes less variable with age. So there's also these kind of different interpretations depending on which measurement you look at. Uh, and and mm. one of the things I, I look forward to in the next year is actually to really dive into the literature and to see where those different interpretations uh, could arise from if it's something about you know using EEG versus fMRI or using different algorithms to quantify noise or different behaviors that are used. Um, and I hope to kind of find a you know, maybe a conclusion about um, those different interpretations that people have come up with over the years. So are you hoping to use these new tools in rodents to try and answer some of these questions and look at some of these theories of what neural noise is? And then you're going to take that and translate that into human experiments, do you think? Yeah, so with the rodents, I'm really excited that we have data from neural spikes. Plus, we can also uh, simultaneously measure the LFP, which is quite close to the human EEG. Of course, it has different properties, uh, but we can do some of the same analyses. So I'm going to start there, and I also want to link this to computational models of behavior that I'm more familiar with from my PhD. You know, those types of learning and decision-making models, and including confidence that I was describing earlier. And then, indeed, once I have some answers there, you know, taking it into the lab with our human volunteers, um, I'm really testing side by side if we can find the same things. I think that will be a really exciting translational uh, step because now in systems neuroscience, there's really a lot of progress and a lot of uh, great tools. But ultimately, uh, I and I think many others are also quite interested in our own brains uh, and in, in the brain of, uh, of you know, larger and, and cognitively very different animals. So uh, that would be well, an exciting thing. Well, the goal in many ways, like animal models are useful as tractable model organisms that we have tools available in to sort of delve into the, the nitty gritty biological mechanisms. But I suppose fundamentally, we want to know what's going on up here. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is a really exciting time, I think, because as you say, there's, there are so many tools available um, in rodents and in other animal models but i think gradually the sort of overlapping tools where we can make gradually like sort of comparable observations in humans and in rodent models there's some really like an exciting possibility to actually do something very fundamentally translational 
Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the easiest starting points is just in behavior. Like we're able to train rodents to do all these pretty cool and, and abstract and, and interesting tasks. And, and that is really a field that has been exploding over the last few years. So I think there, you know, behavior is, is easy because then, the, you know, the analyses are not uh, so dependent on the, the differences between how you measure the EEG signal or how you measure the LFP. But of course, ultimately, we also want to take that into the brain. And, and there also, I think, uh, a lot more commonalities are starting to, uh, to arise. On the topic of behaviour, you were saying that uh, you're interested in taking these observations from the International Brain Lab project, which is in rodents, and trying to come up with a sort of comparable project in humans. Sort of feels like you're going to need to give mice and humans quite different tasks. I imagine a mouse task humans will find quite easy. <laughs> That's definitely true. And I'm actually now working at, with a talented uh, student here to try and find a sweet spot where we make the task, you know, a bit harder for humans, but still make the, the structure of the task comparable to that of mice so that when we analyze it with these models of decision making and learning that we can still, you know, draw uh, similar conclusions about the different strategies that they may do. And ultimately, it may we may find that the strategies are so different that it actually doesn't make all that much sense to analyze the brain data side by side, but that would be something useful to know because it might also imply that not everything we learn about mouse behavior and the neural basis of mouse behavior is all that relevant for, for humans. So I think regardless of what we find, it will be uh, it will be interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. That sounds like that would be a really useful step forward. Now, I'm conscious we're probably going to have to wrap up quite soon, but I have two more questions for you. Uh, the first one is, what would you say you are most excited about with your lab and your work and the projects that are going on in the next year or couple of years? I think one of the things that I really look forward to is to really dive into a lot of the data that I collected as a postdoc. So as I described, like the end of my postdoc was a little bit frantic, like I was trying to wrap all these recordings and it was locked down and uh, there wasn't that much time to really sit and think about the data. And now I'm finishing up some other projects and uh, you know, hopefully in a few months I'll really have time to kind of look at those data uh, and, and really play with them and see what's going on in all that richness. Because so far I haven't uh, really worked with those large-scale neural recordings, you know, at the single neural level. So that's definitely something uh, I look forward to, which is more in, in the intermediate future. And yeah, we talked a little bit about climate action. I also hope that, um, you know, we'll make some bigger changes as a community and that in the next years, you know, hopefully I can play my small part in kind of thinking about uh, how to make neuroscience more future-proof in that way as well. No, I think that's a great goal and I, I hugely appreciate you taking part in that kind of project. Um, okay, final question. If you weren't a neuroscientist, what do you think you would be doing instead? Yeah, so this was an easy one for me to answer. So in high school, I always thought I would be an interpreter. I really liked learning different languages. I, I studied a couple of them. Uh, and in one of those, you know, what profession should you choose tests at the end of high school? That was actually one of the things that, that came up. And I always thought it would be super cool to work for the European Union, where there's so many countries coming together and they actually have this um, translation into many different languages that are all spoken around the EU. And for some reason, you know, I ended up here, but, but I still think that that would have been a really fun career as well in this kind of fast-moving, complex environment where you can translate these ideas from one language to another um, and, you know, help, help facilitate uh, communication between people. That's an excellent answer to that question. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably all we've got time for. But thank you so much for coming and talking to me today, Anne. This has been a really great chat. 
Thanks for having me. This was great. And thanks for doing this amazing uh, podcast project. Mm-hmm.